All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. I got to get to it. Man, I'm late. You know, it's, it's funny. I'm going to go over time because I, I just know I am. I'll try to do it as fast as I can, but I can still blame it on you, Nick. Like, you didn't even preach today. I can still blame you uh, for, because I got out of church last week. I preached at Middle River. Their service ended at 1130. As we were walking out of the church, I said to Denise, you know, Nick's preaching. We can probably still get back for the end of the service today, but... Chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word for us today. I, I uh, last week had the opportunity to preach with my dad in the, in the house, to preach in the church that my dad's serving, and got to talk a little bit about how my dad was a mentor to me and continues to be a mentor to me as a pastor and as a preacher. And, you know, one of the things that my dad told me early on, one of the things that he really uh, stressed with me early on, I think probably because he was a bit concerned uh, knowing his son the way that he knows him. Uh, but he early on told me when I went to my first church, son, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this and don't forget this. Someone is always watching you. He told me that, and it turns out that that's true. Someone is always watching the preacher. Someone's always watching the pastor. Everybody knows where he lives. Everybody sees him out in the yard. When I was in West Virginia, I lived way back off the, off the road, up on a hill, up in the trees. And I had a guy tell me once, who lived 10 miles from the church, that he saw me every morning drinking my coffee out on the porch. Somebody's always watching, right? Somebody's always Watching, And one of the things is we've been working through 1 Peter for 10 months now, working through 1 Peter. One of the things that's really stood out to me and struck me the most forcefully is the truth that Peter reminds us of, the truth that our faith is not a private matter. Your faith is not a private matter. Yeah, I've referenced it a hundred times, but I can't overstate the importance of chapter 2, verse 12. If you haven't underlined it or highlighted it yet, you need to do it. Chapter 2, verse 12 being the key verse, I think, in this, uh, in this entire letter where Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable among an unbelieving world. The world is watching you when they see, he says, when they see your good works. So the world is watching. Let them see your faith in action. And so he comes out of chapter 2, verse 12, gives us those examples, those four examples that we can all relate to in some way or another. Citizens, let your faith uh, live in action in your relationship to the government. Servants in relation to masters, or in our case, employees in relation to employers, wives in relation to husbands, husbands in relation to wives. If you don't fit into any of those categories, Peter's going to get you on the last one because his last instruction for us living out our faith in the world is there in, in verse 8. Finally, he says, finally, all of you, 
all of you. And the finally really is the link again. It's the link back to chapter 2, verse 12, where he's been, he started there. And now finally he says, all of you. So all of us, none of us, listen to what I'm about to say, none of us are exempt from living out our faith publicly. None of us get an exemption where we can just say, you know, I'm just going to sort of keep my faith to myself in my home. I'm going to, I'm not going to be conscious of the watching world. This is just about me and Jesus. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's primarily, it starts there, but it flows from that. None of us are exempt from the responsibility to live a life of good deeds, not just good words, but good deeds. None of us are exempt from the responsibility to represent Jesus to the people around us. So he says, all of you do this. All of you. Now, let me ask you a question, important question. If the only thing people know about Jesus is what they see in you, what do people know about Jesus? I mean, just think about that. If the only thing some people in your life, whether they're at your, your place of employment or they're in your home or they're your neighbors or whatever, wherever you're rubbing elbows with people, if the only thing they know about Jesus is what they see in you as a follower of Jesus, what do people think about Jesus? I mean, that's a really important question. So we've, we've sort of been through that. I'm, I'm trying to just get up to the, the next point here. So you ask yourself that question. It's an important question. But Peter adds a new dynamic to this whole thing in verse 10. So he's told us already the world is watching, Right? The world is watching, but the world is not the only witness to your life as a follower of Jesus. Look at verse 10. Where Peter says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And I'm coming back to that, y'all. I'm coming back later on in the summer. We're going to deal with the idea of our words, the things we say. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Here it is. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the world is watching your life as you follow Jesus, but not just the world. The Lord is watching your life as you live for Jesus. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Because we can hide from the world. If we need to, we can hide from the world. But the Lord sees every part of our life. Now, there are two ways that we can take this. Two ways we can take this admonition from, from Peter. One is we can take it as a scare tactic. You ever use this scare tactic with your kids? You ever? My parents, uh, the, uh, every year when I was a teenager, I would, uh, my brother and I, Greg, when we got to be about, uh, I was about 15 and he would have been 17, we're two years apart. So about in that time frame, mom and dad started leaving the two of us home alone every year right now. That This would be the day they would leave to go to the Southern Baptist Convention. They'd leave us for four days and they'd sit us down. They, yeah, I know. They'd sit us down and they would always give us the same speech and they'd say, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. Do this. Don't do this. Nobody can come in this house except the two of you while we're gone. And then they would always say, we have people watching the house. <laughs> and they did. And we didn't care. We did whatever we wanted to do anyway. They'd come home and give us the skinny who was there at what time. 
But, but it was a scare tactic. Somebody's watching. You better not do wrong. Somebody's watching. That's one way you could take this, but I don't think that's the way it's meant to be taken. The other way you can take it is as motivation to honor Christ in everything that you do. Not as a scare tactic, but as a motivation a tactic, so to speak. So it's, this, I would see, is like the, the athlete uh, who's going out, the college athlete or high school athlete, who's going out onto the field to uh, play the game, and he knows that there's scouts coming. And so with the knowledge that somebody's watching, that somebody's seeing what's going on, that's motivation to do the very best that you can do in every single circumstance, in every single action. And so that, I think, is what Peter's getting at here. He's not trying to scare us, though. The world's watching. God's watching. You better do right. He's saying the world's watching. God's watching. Let that motivate you to do right. God sees all the things. So we take it as motivation to let everyone see Christ in us. And so now, in that context, it's sort of wedged in the middle of that context, is his practical instructions for us. I'm going to go through this list uh, of five qualities of a Christian life. I'm going to go quick. Five qualities of a Christian life that we see in this passage. Look at it again in verse 8. It's all there in verse 8, where he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are five qualities of the Christian life. Not the only five, but five, what I would say are crucial qualities of the Christian life. It's interesting, even the structure of the sentence is interesting. Um, Nick, you and I uh, probably graduated about the same place in high school, you know, same level in our class. I may have beaten you uh, in some respects there. I'm not an English major, but I know a little bit about uh, the English language. And, And how many of you know what an adjective is? You know what an adjective is? Yes, what's an adjective? Some people are laughing because they're like, I said I do, and I don't really know. <laughs> an adjective describes a noun, right? It's a word that describes a noun. And so in this, we, we don't really see it here, but in the original language, what you have here, if you got into the words and found out what type of words we're using here, you have uh, the subject, you, the all of you, the church, and then, so, so that's the, the noun, so to speak, and then you have a list. Each one of these words in Greek is just an adjective. These are just five ways to describe a Christian. Five ways to describe what our lives should look like as we follow Jesus for a watching world and for a watching God. So let's get right to them. What are five crucial qualities of the Christian life? Number one, Christian unity. And these are really specifically, by the way, uh, all of these adjectives, all of these qualities are, are really in the context of the church. So not, I don't mean the context of the church like, you know, this building, obviously. I mean amongst Christians. How do we live with one another? The greatest witness uh, or, or sometimes the worst witness for the world is how Christians treat Christians. So here he's talking to Christians and says, all of you have unity of mind, Christian unity. Peter says uh, that we're all supposed to have this unity. Let me read you a great quote from William Barclay. He says, all through the New Testament rings this plea for Christian unity. And it's more than just a plea. It's an announcement that no man can live the Christian life unless in his personal relationships he is at unity with his fellow man. And the church cannot be truly Christian if there are divisions within it. 
That's a big, big quote, to which I totally agree with. Paul made this urgent plea to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.10, where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the name of Jesus, he's begging them. He says, I appeal to you that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Christians ought to be united about the things that matter. We can't go through this world trying to be witnesses to the world if we're fighting with one another over silly things. There's got to be unity. You know, one of my favorite people in the world, and I got his permission to use his name this morning because I know he watches and I don't want to surprise him. One of my favorite people in the world is Mike High. A lot of you know Mike, don't you? He brings you firewood or you see him over at Jenny's Market with his flowers, you know. Just one of the greatest guys in the world. And we've become friends over the last several years. We've, we've really grown and have a good relationship. He sends me great messages every Sunday after the sermon, encouraging messages, what he liked about the sermon. And, and I go over there and see him sometimes at the market and we talk. And then sometimes he does something that nobody around here does. If he sees me out in the yard sometimes... He just pulls in and we talk. I love that. I love seeing Mike pulling in the driveway and we, we get to talk. And, and so a couple weeks back, Mike pulled in the driveway and we were chatting and we were talking about a little bit about this and a little bit about that. And, and uh, before he left, I said, Mike, let's pray. Let's pray together. Let me pray for you. And, uh, and so we put our arms around each other right up in the middle of my driveway, you know, and put our arms around each other. And, and we just prayed just pray and ask God's blessing on our lives and our families and our as husbands and as fathers. And we were praying. We got done, gave each other a big hug. Mike left. Now, now i tell you that, not to brag or, or anything like that. We do that those type of things with one another. But it occurred to me after that, it's like suddenly I noticed all the cars driving by as Mike was pulling out. And I thought to myself, wonder how many people drove by and saw these two big guys out, out in the middle of the driveway with their arms around each other and their heads bound praying. And you know what I thought? I thought, there's so much about Mike and I that the world would say divides us. I mean, Mike's a, a little more experienced than I am. I, I'm, I'm a little younger. His, he has more kids than I have. He has 10 kids. He's certifiably crazy, you know, 10, <laughs> 10 kids. I have four. Um, we, we come from different backgrounds. We come from different families. Here's one. Let's just be honest about this. Today, in today's culture, the world would say, you guys can't have anything in common because he's a black man and you're a white man. But let me tell you something. As I thought about that day, that moment out in my driveway, I thought, this is what the world needs to see in the church. They need to see more of us, whether we're black or white or, or whether we're male or female or young or old. They need to see more of us putting our arms around each other in unity, setting aside the differences, the things that divide us, and being unified in our minds around the blood of Christ. That's what unifies us. That's what calls us 
us together. And the world needs to see more of that. We can't live out our faith for a watching world or live out our faith and please a watching God if we're not unified with one another. So Christian unity, number one. Number two, sympathy. The word literally means, literally means sharing the same feelings. It's literally what that word means. It's a prefix and then a root. Prefix means the same. The, the root means feelings. It just means same feelings, have the same feelings. I, I relate to this most with my kids. How many of you with your children, uh, you see your kids sad, like genuinely sad, not mad, not mad crying because you told them to go clean the room, but genuinely sad, right? How does it make you feel immediately? Sad. They shed tears, your eyes fill with tears. When you see your child genuinely happy, how do you feel? You immediately feel happy. You, you share the same feeling. That's the idea here, that we would share each other's feelings, that we would be able to weep with one another when we weep, that we would laugh when we laugh, that we would rejoice when we rejoice. Share each other's feelings. I, I, uh, I had a moment the other day when this really hit home for me. I know, I know that some of you have been uh, following and, and heard the story of uh, the, the little six-year-old boy out in Los Angeles who was shot in his mother's car, sitting in his car seat. Uh, in a road rage incident. Y'all hear about that? And thankfully they caught the, the two people who were responsible for that, killed, killed that six-year-old boy. I was driving that day and I was listening to that and I was listening to the sister tell the story of what happened that day. And she said that uh, little Aiden was sitting in his car seat. As she was being dropped off from school, they fired a shot into the car. They heard the shot but didn't realize what had happened. And then Aiden just said, Mommy, my stomach hurts. And she pulled over, took him out of the car, and held him as he died before they could even reach him to give him aid. And that just shattered my heart because I thought of my little six-year-old boy. This is what Peter's telling us, though, is that we should be able to feel what others are feeling, not, not just be callous, but weep with one another, feel each other's pain, rejoice with one another, do these things, have sympathy for one another. That's a quality of a Christian life. It's the opposite of being self-absorbed, by the way. The opposite of, of only caring about yourself. I think there's something interesting in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, by the way, uh, where, where the writer of Hebrews describes, and this I think is glorious, describes Jesus as sympathetic towards us. Jesus himself in Hebrews 4.15, he says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Doesn't it make you feel good to know that Jesus can feel the things that you feel when you struggle in life? that the Savior of your soul, the Creator of this world, sympathizes with you. Number three, brotherly love. This is a word, again, all of these sort of uh, building upon one another. Some have said that brotherly love being in the middle, uh, you have two before it and two after it, brotherly love just sort of being the glue that holds it all together. And this is a word that speaks about our love for one another as family members. How many of you think of your church family as family? Uh, we really do. Uh, we really do. We think of our church family as family. We, we're meant to love one another as 
family. This, this idea that Christians ought to treat one another as if they're actually members of the same family. And this doesn't limit itself to the people in this room or in this church. This is every Christian. You ought to have a, a family bond with other Christians, loving them as if they're part of your family. I, I think that there's something interesting about brotherly love that goes beyond what Peter says here. It's not just something that we're commanded to do, but get ready for this. Brotherly love is not only a command in the New Testament. It's also one of the few things that we're told we can measure the genuineness of our salvation with. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death and into life. In other words, this is how you can know you've been saved. We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, if you do not love the brothers, you do not know Jesus. Without the, the, the quality of a Christian life, without brotherly love being evidenced in your life, that in itself is a way we can know if a person knows Jesus or not. And without it, he says you're abiding in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, again, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Brotherly love. Brotherly love is a crucial quality of the Christian life. We're commanded to do it, but we're also told that it would be natural for us. In fact, Paul said concerning brotherly love, I have no need to write about this any longer. The Holy Spirit does that in our life, concerning brotherly love. So we have these things, unity of mind, Christian unity, sympathy, feeling the same feelings, brotherly love. And then he says, a tender heart. Tender heart, that's just what exactly it sounds like. What's the op Sometimes the best way to define something is just to ask what's the opposite. A hard heart is the opposite of a tender heart. <clears throat> and I'm concerned that as a people... I don't just mean in our church here. I find our church to be very loving and very tender. But I am concerned that at culturally we're becoming a calloused people. That we're becoming people with calloused hearts, that we're so accustomed to seeing suffering and seeing hardship. We're so able to follow everything. Things happen now. Sometimes my, things happen, my kids will come home and say, Hey, did you hear about such and such? And I'll say, surprisingly, yeah, I did. I heard about it today at work. I, and nothing happens. We all know about it. We all see it. We all watch it. And I'm concerned that we're becoming callous people. And, and I'm always sickened by seeing some awful thing happening to some person. And it seems like now the first response of the people in our culture is no longer to intervene, but to take out their cell phone and record it. I think that's, that's a real symptom of callous hearts. I saw a video, I think some of y'all probably saw this video not long ago. I don't know how you couldn't see it. 
It was in every news outlet of a woman. I, I can't remember what they were in a Dunkin' Donuts or something. I don't remember. It was Little Caesars or something. And this woman who's being savagely beaten by another woman while the, the little two-year-old is attempting to intervene. And everybody in the place recorded it rather than stepping in to stop it. What in the world does it matter with us if that's the way we approach suffering? Christians ought to be people with tender hearts, people who cannot stand by with indifference while other people are suffering. Even if it costs us our safety, even if it costs us our standing, even if it costs us our lives, we ought to want to intervene for people who are suffering. Number five, a humble mind. Unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds. One commentator said that humility is arguably the most essential, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life. Here's a good definition of humility from Thomas Schreiner. He says, humility means that others are considered more important than oneself and that pride does not fill one's life. Paul said it clearly, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing, listen, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. And just, brothers and sisters, just think of everything that would become right in the world if we lived this way. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of of others. A humble mind. Look out for other people as more important than yourself. Now, these five adjectives, I want to try to wrap all this up for you this morning by just saying that I think that we can see something here in these five adjectives that teach us something about the essence of the Christian life. It's not just a list of, of words that we do. It's a person that we follow. And I think that we can see really clearly in this verse and in this list that these adjectives, these descriptive words are all words that describe Jesus. So another way that we could say this is, as Christians, the way that you live your life faithfully for the watching world and live your life to please a watching God is to live your life emulating the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the highest picture of unity and the pursuit of unity in his high priestly prayer just before he went to the cross, John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus prayed as he was going to the cross for our unity even as he's unified with God. Jesus sympathizes. I talked about that already. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus loves us with an everlasting love. And I know we talk a lot about agape being God love, but the Bible does use Philadelphia brotherly love to describe Jesus' love for us as well. Jesus loves us the way we ought to love one another. Jesus had a tender heart. The strongest man who ever lived went to the grave of his friend Lazarus and wept. He had a tender heart and gave us a picture of humility that the world would never truly know. Look at Philippians chapter 2, or listen to it again. Listen to Philippians chapter 2 again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So we read that already. But listen, he goes on to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the picture of humility. Counting others is more important than himself. Are you following Jesus for the world to see? Are you, are you following Jesus for your Father in heaven to see in a way that pleases Him? Here's a roadmap. And Gary, would you come on up? This roadmap, listen to it again. What are five crucial qualities that ought to be evident in your life as a follower of Jesus? Unity of mind with other Christians. No division. Unity. Sympathy. Feeling the same feelings. The opposite of being self-absorbed and not, not caring. Brotherly love. Love your Christian brothers and sisters as if they are your brothers and sisters. Let's stop calling each other brother and sister in word and start loving each other's brothers and sisters with our actions. A tender heart. Tender heart that cares and cannot stand idly by when someone is suffering. And a humble mind, someone who looks out for others is more significant than themselves. Five crucial qualities 